I didn't know I was first. Um, but here goes. I'm going to try. I'm going to read this because we have like five minutes, right? So um, I'm going to read this short thing that I've never read before. So we'll see if it works uh, as a out loud piece. It might. It's called "Seeing the Future." These bo- these are this is from a, uh, a series of books I'm doing. I've, I've published two of them, and I've got two more to go. That are little bits, uh, little travel anecdotes, and I have a whole theory of the anecdote, which I'm not going to bore you with. Um, This is called Seeing the Future, and it's um, Seoul, South Korea. Arriving at Incheon International Airport, I felt like a kid from the shtetl, first seeing New York in the 1890s, or Hmong tribesmen airlifted from the Laotian Hills into Minneapolis in 1975. The future lords it over you in the swooping terminal, gleaming, prodigious, awe-inspiring. The subway protrudes as a three-story high tube of insistent chrome and glass, the front end like an enormous polished bullet. The subway itself glitters with chrome, dozens of TV screens in each car, all showroom floor spotless. Above ground, the roads are smooth and black, crackless, center lines bright white. Seoul itself is a mixed bag with some unreconstructed neighborhoods, a little grime on the older buildings. But even there, the economic economic vibrancy is palpable. The only real holdovers from the 20th century or earlier, besides a preserved temple here and there, are the gold hustlers that have an eye out for foreigners and whose mannered friendliness is warning enough. Cranes abound, piling the city higher. We are very up and coming a man told me on the subway. A few days into my trip, also on the subway, I had a chat with a young woman, maybe 20 years old, who said hello, obviously interested in the one foreigner on the train, and like many young people everywhere, interested, I thought, in practicing her English. She was an odd young woman, a little slow to respond when I said something, and it wasn't clear at first whether it was a language problem, or she was distracted for some reason, or on the autism spectrum somewhere. She wore a hodgepodge of clothing items, sweaters and scarves and wraps, all more or less black. I asked her whether she had ever heard of the restaurant I was on my way to, and she said, after a pause, no. I took that as a hint that she was done chatting and opened my notebook and jotted down a few things. After a minute, I looked up to see her staring at me. She asked what I was doing, and I said I was a writer. I was just making a few notes about my day. You are a book writer, she said, rather than asked. Yes, I said, I I have one book being translated into Korean. She looked a little to one side of me, said nothing for ten seconds, and then... Books. Yes. When my stop came, she had already turned to the door and I followed her out. As we rode up the escalator, I thanked her for her conversation and said goodbye. I headed out of the station and noticed she was walking alongside me. I looked over and she smiled. You're going this way? I asked. Yes, she said and smiled again. Okay, I said and scanned the street for my restaurant, quickly seeing it. She walked, uh, when we got to the door, I turned to say goodbye once again, and she walked past me as if I were holding the door for her. I said hello to a waitress in the front of the restaurant, and the young woman talked to her in Korean. She answered and showed us to a table. Looking slightly to my left again, 
She said, I will translate. The waitress handed me an English menu and the young woman, a Korean one. I ordered and the young woman repeated everything I said. The names of the dishes were transliterated Korean and my pronunciation was close enough, which I could tell because she repeated verbatim. Are you hungry, I asked? No. Do you want to order something small anyway or we can just share what I've ordered and and a drink? She turned to the waitress and they had a conversation. When the food came, there were piles of it, and it kept coming. Korean food often has multiple side dishes, and we ended up with 20 or more plates and bowls of various sizes, all some of the, some, only some of the food recognizable. The young woman ate with, a speed and, with the speed and intensity of a contest eater. She looked up only once to smile and then dove back in. Long after I had finished, she was still at it, unrelenting, unconcerned with appearance or really anything but efficient shoveling. It was a remarkable performance, and she was a small person, five feet tall, maybe 105 pounds, maybe less, at least before dinner. I tried a few times to have a conversation, but got only nods or shakes of her head in response. She was not a student. She did not have a job. She shrugged when I asked... Oh, she did have a job. She shrugged when I asked doing what. Eventually, I quit asking questions and watched. When she was done, the dishes cleared, the check paid. We walked out into the evening, and I thanked her for her help, said goodbye, shook her hand, and started wandering down the street, away from the subway. Once again, she fell into step alongside me. Do you live this way? I asked. She took a half block to reply with a shake of the head. Okay, I said, and stopped. She stopped. I said goodbye a fourth time, turned around and started walking back to the subway. Subway, she got in step next to me. You write books, she said. I said yes, and started describing them a bit until it felt like it had just been a prompt to get me talking. She was not what you would call an active listener. For all I knew, she wasn't listening at all. I decided to try an experiment and didn't say anything for the eight or ten blocks back to the subway. She said nothing. If I looked over at her, she smiled, then looked back ahead. When we got to the station, we went down the escalator. It was starting to feel maybe not less strange and unsettling, but funny, like a Mr. Bean episode. I put my ticket in the machine, which spit it back out at me, and started walking toward the track. She had stopped before the entry and stood looking at me. I turned and waved, walking backward a few steps, still waving. She waved back, standing still. I checked one last time as I turned a corner, and she was still there. I waved. She waved. I walked down the tiled hallway and got on my train. In a minute, she was beside me. She must have run. I asked her what she wanted, where she thought she was going now, and she shrugged, not looking at me. I'm going back to my hotel now, I said, and I need to do some work. She made no sign that she heard me. I looked around the car. It was fairly empty. The day over, nobody seemed interested in me or us. I wanted some outside read, some sense that this was either as odd as it felt or not. Getting off the train, I walked with my shadow to the hotel and into the lobby. She followed me in. Thank you, I said, for accompanying me tonight. She looked to my left and said nothing. I held out my hand to shake hers, but she didn't lift her arm. I pushed the elevator button. The clerk at the front desk watched us discreetly. Good night, I said, and bowed. She bowed, almost a reflex, and I backed into the elevator. 
to bow, perhaps, or perhaps because it was in front of the clerk, had stalled her. She was standing in the same place, looking off in the same direction. I waved as the elevator door closed, but she didn't look up. As the tiny elevator rose, I wondered whether she'd be there in the morning. She wasn't. Huge thanks to Professor Tom Lutz for starting us off. He's obviously a man who's far too charismatic for his own good. Uh, For those of you who are just joining us, this is a reading by... See, no, I'm, I'm distracted. Um, thank you. Thank you, Professor Lutz. Um, for those of you who are just joining us, this is a reading by uh, members of the faculty and the MFA uh, program at University of California, Riverside. Our first student reader tonight is Ashanti Anderson. Um, she earned her BS in psychology from Xavier University of Louisiana. Before officially deciding to pursue her goals as a writer, she was a research assistant in a lab that studied the effects of music on the cognition of individuals with dementia. She's published poetry, creative nonfiction, essays, and research articles through various print and electronic publications. Her interests include psychology, theology, cooking, nature, and she usually, sometimes unintentionally, incorporates at least two of these into every piece that she writes. So, welcome, Ashanti. Uh, Good evening. I forgot that list. It was theology, (laughs) nature, did I say food? Okay. Um, Let's see what two uh, these poems have today. Um, One is definitely theology. Not sure about the other one. But I'm going to read two pieces. The first one is Untitled. Christ, you cannot have experienced every temptation there is under the sun until the disciple you love tells you that death is far too ambiguous, lifts his robe for you, reveals his loins, tells you he wants to know if the Lord has really come. Showing me your open palms, open with glory holes, doesn't even come close. I don't care how hard you've been drilled. How can you say you love me when you couldn't love John or Peter or Lazarus hard enough to stop your fanboys from coming to me replaying your amateur hardcore BDSM smut today? Thank you. Uh, And the second one is called Teach Me to Float. Um, I can't sing, but for some reason I always seem to try. Um, So I'm going to try today. Wade in the water that surrounds us, a testament that earth will keep on jiving without you, a covenant of God, a promise to propel you to lower water pressures as you sink. In the water, suffocation is like cotton, 
Those waves you question become your noose. Your own bones chain you to the thing you swim from. Wade in, but don't trust these waves for kindness. They own you and don't owe you a thing. God is gonna fix your lips not to complain of the fish who drink tears for oxygen when you feel there is nothing left to give this life cry again your purpose is your pain trouble these waters but don't ask me why your God made waves that tear into you all too familiar that which you consider an epilogue, let me remind you, is practice. Thank you. Thank you, Ashanti. I think we only missed cooking. Um, is Robin here? Okay, so next up we have another student reader, Lorelai Bauman. Uh, she's a second year fiction MFA student. Uh, she came to writing late in life. She lives in uh, the country out in Temecula. All right. Okay, well this is an excerpt out of a story. Um, actually, it's probably the titular excerpt. It's called Animals in a Landscape. Um, the protagonist is Mercer. My God, that's loud. Protagonist is Marissa. She's been fired as an HR person and is now cleaning houses with a coworker named Nadia. And she has a troublesome teenage daughter named Nicole. Marissa hung by the Corolla, whose door signs proudly announced, Barb's Cleaning Services, we clean so you don't have to, waiting for Nadia, who came out of the little office smoking a cigarette. Marissa had only been around her for two days and had never seen anyone smoke as much and enjoy it more, inhaling it like mountain air. Marissa had long ago given up smoking. She kept envisioning the little cilia in her lungs shrieking and huddling into precancerous masses. But Nadia's, they were Soviet-born, tough as tundra. Nadia leaned on the other side of the car and flapped the pink cleaning order at Marissa, then signaled for her to throw the keys over the hood. I drive. Today we go to Thunderbrook. It's a good place. She took a last happy pull on her cigarette, then threw the butt into the dirt in front of the office where it smoldered in the weeds. Marissa scuttled over to stomp it out and caught Nadia rolling her eyes. It's big house. Nadia handled the Corolla like a pro, weaving in and out of traffic, downshifting the little car with artful precision. A man from Hollywood, he gets away there, some big director guy. We can sit outside and look at the view when we're done. Marissa thought this was a pastoral inclination for the tough Nadia, but it was a mild day when the air felt like champagne. Sitting outside a big house looking at a view sounded just fine. She trailed her fingers out the window as they left the valley floor and wound up through the conifers. At the top of the hill, Nadia drove them through a wrought iron gate after punching in the code and down a long winding driveway so peaceful and dappled with sunlight, Marissa wondered if she could live there in a tent and clean their house for free for the rest of her life. She'd bring Nicole, but in a separate tent. At the top of the hill was the house looking like floating panels of glass reflecting the sun. 
When they got inside, Nadia told her which rooms to clean, all of which looked spotless. The huge windows made it feel like she was working outside, and openings at the Japanese roof line let in the natural air. Marissa fingered the thousand thread count sheets, pushed her face into the Freddy towels, and smelled the soap. When she got to the ultra-white living room and started to dust the mantle, she stood back and drew up short. Above the fireplace was a painting of two cows in an abstract landscape of vivid yellows, reds, and greens. The content didn't matter. In fact, she barely noticed. It was the feeling of both adventurousness and peace at the same time. She sat down on the sofa and gazed at it. Nadia came in from smoking outside. This painting looks like Franz Marc. Marissa looked at her blankly. German painter from 1900s. He would show joy with yellow and for home, like you say, domestic and red. When Marissa couldn't hide her surprise, Nadia said, I was art student in Moscow. What? You think we're all gangsters. Now she could feel herself blushing. It had crossed her mind. This painting probably worth lots of money. Marissa didn't care about that. Thinking of the painting as a commodity seemed grotesque. And as she went through the rest of the house, cleaning the smudges off the doorknobs and vacuuming her footprints out of the carpet, it followed her. She'd never been one for art, didn't know how to respond to it, and felt uneasy around people who did, like they were lying when they were marked on the tension of impending cataclysm. But that yellow was joyful. It felt as if it had opened up a kind of fizz at the edge of her psyche, like a brand new way to travel to any place she wanted. When they were finished, she waited out by the infinity pool in the back with her cleaning equipment gathered around her feet. Nadia came out with two bottles of sweating beer dangling from her fingers. She handed one to Marissa and plunked down on the lounge chair next to her. They sat in companionable silence, watching trails of mist falling from a biplane that was spraying the artichoke fields below. So, you have kids? Nadia asked. One girl, she loves the name Nadia. She used to do gymnastics and watch videos of Nadia Komenichi over and over. Many Russian girls named for her, like my mother. Me? I was named for my mother. She took a pull on her beer. Does she still do it, the gymnastics? No. Now she's got a boyfriend named Troy that shaves half his head and has a pierced lip. Nadia snorted a laugh. Marissa watched the biplane raise and bank a hard left, headed home. Right after Eddie had left her, at a time when Marissa would spend all day wading through little puddles of pain, back when it was wine by noon, back when she finally finished that leftover Vicodin, Nicole would come into her bedroom and shake her awake. She'd bow and invite her to a special showing of the great Nicole on a balance beam she'd rigged in the living room. She'd finish up her routine with her arms lifted, her little girl back arced in pride, and Marissa would pretend to be a judge, applauding wildly and giving her all nines and tens. Well, Nadia shrugged, with a boyfriend like that, I guess it's good she has you, right? Yes, Marissa replied, I suppose it is. Uh, our next reader is Katie Ford. She's the author of Deposition, Coliseum, and Blood Lyrics, which is a finalist for the LA Times Book Prize and the Rilke Prize. Coliseum was named among the best books of 2008 by Publishers Weekly and the Virginia Quarterly Review and led to a Lennon Literary Fellowship and the Larry Levis Prize. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, 
Poetry Magazine, The Paris Review, The American Poetry Review, and The Norton Introduction for Literature, and she's currently serving as a judge for the 2016 National Book Awards. Her fourth book is forthcoming from Grey Wolf Press, Gray Wolf Press in 2018. She's a professor of creating writing, creative writing and the director of the MFA program. Thanks, Kate. <clears throat> All right, so I thought I might uh, have a Valentine's theme and write, read some love poems, which doesn't mean it's going to be sweet, because I look back through my uh, history. I went through my three books today and trying to find some love poems, and I, I found like four but only two kind of are really love poems. So they talk, they talk about love. They, they think about love. Um, so I'll start with a poem called um, Koi, and it's from Coliseum. <clears throat> and uh, the only thing I think I'll say before I read it is, um, is uh, I didn't know this before I did. But uh, Galileo's book is called is Starry Messenger, and I refer to that here in the beginning. So it's called Koi, um, K-O-I, like the fish. After all the days and nights... This, just a second, I want to check my time here. After all the days and nights we've spent with Starry Messenger, with Dante, with Plato... His temperance, painted as a woman who pours water into a bowl, but does not spill. After particle theory and the geologic time of this quartz, gilded beneath the roaming gone, composites of limestone calculated down to the animal that laid upon it and quietly died, after hearing how camels carted away the broken colossus of roads, showing us how to carry and build back our destroyed selves. Hearing there was once a hand that first turned an infant right in the womb, that there was inside of Michelangelo an Isaiah to carve out the David, the idea, the one buried in us who can slay the enormities. After all visions and prophecies that made the heart large, once and again, true or untrue, after learning to shave the gleaming steel down, the weapon, the bomb we make, and the watercolor made after of the dropped upon the crowd, thin strokes over a pale wash. After all this, still one of us can't know another. Once, under an iron sky, I listened to a small assemblage of voices. Two by two broke off into the field to strip down the unbroken flock of starling dark between them. The ceremony of the closing in, the hope each to each might not stay tourists before the separate, chiseled ruin of the other. The unspeakable, the illegible one before us. This is what the linguists call the dead, isn't it? But how are you, we say, meaning, how have you been made? What is wrong? What happened, we ask, 
How long have you been waiting? Are you on my side? Can you promise to stay? Will you keep the etchings clear on my stone and come visit me? You're never known. Will you lean over my ghost? How we leaned over the green pools of the Japanese garden. A cluster of lanterns blowing out above us, wisp by wisp. A school of koi testing the surface, letting us look all the way in until we saw each eye was like a net heaped on shore. Just like our eyes, weren't they? All accidents, wastes, all saving needs filled and unfilled, the cracked shells, the kelp fronds torn from their buoys, all caught here inside us, the seven we loved, the six we lost, sea glass, the living, and the human alone. One fact in that poem I remember hearing uh, that comes into the poem at the end is that the average human falls in love seven times in their life. So, if you're on number six, just wait a while. (laughs) If you're married to number six, (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) So seven. You You can count them up after after we're done here. Okay, that's all the love in that book. Um, I'll just read two more poems and they're much shorter. Um, this is called Psalm, uh, Psalm 40. It's a little bit of a translation, like a super loose translation of the content of the actual Psalm 40. I am content because before me looms the hope of love. I do not have it I do not yet have it. It is a bird strong enough to lead me by the rope it bites. Unless I pull, it is strong enough for me. I do worry the end of my days might come and I will not yet have it. But even then I will be brave upon my deathbed. And why shouldn't I be? I held things here and I felt them. And to all I felt, I will whisper, Hosanna for goodbye. It is sweet to think of myself, alone at that very moment, able to say such a thing to all that was my life and all that was not. And I'll end with this one that is is more of a traditional love poem, and it's called um, All I Ever Wanted. When I thought it was right to name my desires, what I wanted of life, they seemed to turn like bleeding sheep, not to me, who could have been a caring, if unskilled, shepherd, but to the boxed-in hills, beyond which the blue mountains sloped down with poppies, oranges, crayfish, all the way to the Pacific seas in which the hulls of whales steered them in search of a mate for whom they bellowed in a new, highly particular song we might call the most ardent articulation of love, the pin at the tip of evolution, modestly shining. In the middle of my life, it was right to save my desires, but they went away. I couldn't even make them out not even as dots now in the distance. But 
I see the small lights of winter campfires in the hills. It must be teenagers in love who often go there for their first nights. And each yellow-white glow tells me what I can 